All right, so we are back for part two of uh, our interview with Kevin Kowalik, 2012 London Olympic Games rower. And um, he's back in the studio, back in the box here. Beautiful Friday morning, sunny. He's actually wearing sunglasses right now. We've each got two cups of coffee going. And uh, how'd you sleep last night, Kev? Great. Um, My baby girl only woke up. Four and a half times last night. <laughs> How's what? What's four and a half? Well, right around nine thirty, she started rolling around and kind of started squeaking, but <laughs> fell asleep before I got in the room to try to help her sleep. Yeah, and and we didn't talk about it too much last time. But uh, what what's it like being a being a daddy? Well, it it changes your life pretty dramatically. Yeah, how uh, so? All of a sudden, free time is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, your wife is desperate for interaction. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something else, but okay, interaction, yeah. I guess staying at home with a baby all day yeah. who doesn't talk um, makes you really want to be social. Yeah. All right. And then, uh, so, so like, is it, did you have any preconceived ideas of what it would like to be a father um, before, before you guys actually had Victoria? Yeah, I kind of knew I would have trouble with the first year when they're not very interactive, when they're, or not very communicative. Yeah. And it's been easier than I imagined in that regard, but. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, I, I know I've talked to some people where the guys are like, yeah, I haven't, uh, haven't been able to, con- I wasn't able to connect with them until they were about three years old and had a personality. And I'm like, holy man, that's like the first three years of their <laughs> lives, like. My you kid know. has a personality. Yeah. <laughs> she's not three years old, but yeah, she definitely has a personality. Yeah, no, it's it's awesome because now Lex is like almost two. Well, she's like twenty months old now, so it's cool seeing like seeing personality come out and like she's you know starting to talk now and replicate like words that she that you know Lori and I are saying, and then even. Other little kids, she'll pick up on stuff. Like, I came home one day, and uh, my uh, my nieces were over, and Lexa was like, grabbed something from me, and she's like, mine. And I'm like, huh, wonder where you learned that from. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting. But it is it is kind of, it's life-changing. It's pretty pretty amazing having a little human that, like, you have to take care of all the time, and they can't do anything on their own. It's hard to imagine them growing up, though, eh? And, like, becoming a person from this little... Yeah. Yeah, baby. Well, and you hope that, you know, the influences are around them are, are good and, uh, you know, uh, they choose wisely with, you know, friends and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I thought it was really cool last year when we were out, um, you and Victoria and Catherine and Lori and Lexa and I, and we were, like, going for a walk for, for ice cream. So, like, the girls were in their strollers and stuff like that. And it was... Uh, I'm like, man. And they took turns crying, those two? Yeah. Yeah, they were alternating crying back and forth but uh, until Lexa got in the the baby Bjorn and then she was happy. But um, no, just since we've been friends since like being six years old and stuff and gone through a lot and done done a lot of cool stuff together. And then I'm like, man, now we're walking with our daughters to get ice cream like on a Sunday night. Like, wow, this is crazy. So, yeah, (laughs) pretty cool. So... Um, so we'll kind of pick up where we left off. So before, uh, we were talking about your, your biggest takeaway from, uh, your Olympic experience. And then, um, my next question for you was, uh, do you have any regrets or, uh, what would you have done differently? Whether it's 
whether it's training or um, I don't know, just anything about the leading up to the Olympics or or even the the path that you took, because you said that was more important than than the actual um, event being being at the Olympics. I remember losing a piece, being incredibly sore, and the rain started raining on me while I'm in my boat out in Victoria. And I wanted to quit. And I remember telling myself, that's where regrets come in, is when you quit on a low note. I never quit on a low note. Um, if I could do it differently, I probably would start when I'm like 18 or 19 or 20. <laughs> Rather than 26. Yeah. But uh, I really, I've searched and I looked and, you know, I can't really complain. Um, I, I feel that I put everything I had into it. When I was out there, I had a fantastic experience, and uh, I didn't quit on a low note. I quit when I wanted to quit, and when I thought I had accomplished everything I could at my age. Yeah, cool. How many? Like, how old were were a lot of the other guys that you were like competing with and against at the same time? Somebody told me the average age for a heavyweight rower to retire was twenty seven. Okay. Uh, on the team. I think there was about three of us in our 30s or 30, 31. Um, And how how long were they rowing for? They had all, everybody my age had already been to an Olympics and had a medal. Okay. Um, uh, One or two Olympics. Most people were 23 to 27, that kind of range. Okay. Um, Just finishing their university or taking their last year university off to row for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, like every sport, it's, I wouldn't say it's a young man's sport, but it's definitely not a, not a master sport. Not an old man's sport. Yeah. Okay. So, so when you were going to school, um, while you were training, so like rowing is, is full-time commitment. Um, not all Olympic sports um, are a, a full-time commitment uh, when you're training, right? But you have your, your seasons with it too. So how did that work over the, over the four-year period sort of leading up to it? Um, when I first went out there, I trained hard for four months before I uh, had a fractured rib. I, when did that start? So what, were the, like what, what month did you start out there? Well, I went there after I wrote my exams in the fall, in the spring, sorry. Moved out there like a day after I wrote my exam. So that would have been April 26th-ish. So so with that, like you're able to like just go and sort of jump in and it's just a continuous thing out there and it's like you just jump in and get thrown into it or yeah, they, like they have y- a start date of the camp sort of thing? No, y- most people there are full-time. Okay. Um, so you, you knew that going into it, you were going to be overexerted, like jumping up from any kind of part-time workout schedule to a full-time workout schedule, you're going to get some growing pains for the body to adapt. So the first year, it was the four months, and then the body adapted by fracturing a rib. (laughs) Um, So I came back to school for one term here. Uh, It's cheap to live in Manitoba. (laughs) And the Canadian Centre for Sport here was phenomenal at the time. Um, I had an amazing... Had IST leader, I guess, or integrated he, service team leader. Okay. Who was working with me, and the guy set up my schedule around my classes, and he was there for all the intense workouts. 
Uh, they supplied me with a weight trainer. They supplied me, like, they pretty much dictated how I lived my life, and it was great, you know, having that routine. Uh, from there, I moved back January 1st to Victoria and stayed there for 18 months, 19, 20 months, 20 months, so until after the Olympic Games. Uh, so I trained for 20 months straight there. Um, and then after the Olympics... No, sorry, I would have trained there for two and a half years. <laughs> okay, so after two and a half years, I moved back after the Olympics to Winnipeg and then did school for a year while training six hours average a day here while doing school. Full-time school? Yeah, yeah, full-time yeah. engineering. Okay. Um, so you could drive the train? Y- yeah, but they don't let you drive trains, apparently. It's, <laughs> no. it's all math. Yeah. It's weird. Um. Yeah, so I like in order to get my full workout in, I would I ended up biking for biking from the north side of the city to U of M and back every day, and that would be forty minutes each each way. Um, so there's an hour and a half right off the hop that's you know free, and then a couple hour and a half in the gym, and then the rest on the erg or the water. Uh, so I did that for a year, and then moved back again April twenty six, just in time to make the selection and uh, b- bump someone out of the boat, <laughs> take a seat for the next world championships. And that was, uh, that was the plan. Cool. So, so it is, it is full time. Um, it's a full time sport to train for, uh, not, not everyone, uh, going to the Olympics trains full time for their sports. Yeah. I think I was the only one. I think there was only two of us who were allowed to train outside of camp for that year before coming back and getting a shot back in the boats. Okay. So what, so what was it like? So you moved back to Winnipeg, you were training six hours a day still, plus you were um, going to school to become an engineer. Like what was, what was it like trying to balance that type of schedule, your, your schooling and, uh, and the training and how, how was that? Like I said, the, the Canadian Center for Sport here, they set up my schedule. Um, it was really nice because at no point did you have free time to think about how to spend your free time. <laughs> Uh, like it was great. And you got, I got a lot of practice on time management and I guess triage, like even assignments that I would get assigned at school. I would look at how, what percentage they were worth and how much time they would take. And there were some, some that I just didn't even bother writing because I was taking six courses at a time and that's a full-time pursuit. Plus the training, there was just, you had to start making cuts, right? You had to and I couldn't cut on the training because that would show up. So I had to cut the engineering classes. <laughs> so so do, you're someone who thrives on structure then? So if you have something laid out and it's like from this time to this time, this is what you're doing from this time to this time, like it was just completely laid out? I think I thrive on structure, but I also thrive on going uphill, like biting the odds, um, having every excuse to quit. Mm-hmm. So you have no stress that you're going to fail because you're expected to fail. And without that stress, you, I just find that I can push myself harder. Cool. So do you have any recommendations for people that are, say, full-time, full-time students or they're working full-time, yet they still want to, they still want to you know, maybe train and be competitive in you know, whatever sport they're doing um, or any you know, athletic pursuits like that? Yeah, it's all about rigid structure and having a good support team or a good schedule at least. Um, and adhering to it, whether it's, whether you're sore or not, like no excuses, that's all there's to it. 
you stick to your schedule. You can't just because you're tired, watch TV. You still have to go and spend on an hour on the bike. Like you have to stick to it. If you got a bike to bike to the university, then yeah, you can't can't sit and watch TV. It's like I got to get my ass there. And I I don't know, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure there's always like a south a wind coming from the south in the morning, yeah, and then a wind coming from the north in the evening. Cause yeah. Every single day there was a headwind both always, ways. Always uphill. There was one where I showed up for one class, one hour, and that wind turned 180 degrees, and it was like, oh, <laughs> that was a good beat down. I remember talking to you several times after you're like, you know, biking to school and you're talking about, you know, this ass did this and someone cut me off and blah, blah, blah. And now I got to go to court for like <laughs> someone, someone tried pushing you into a oh. intersection and uh, yeah. Yeah. I had one where a car, the, the same car yelled at me yeah. on Pemina and McGilvery. He yelled at me on... Confusion Corner, he yelled at me on Broadway in Maine, <laughs> and he yelled at me a fourth time the same day as he turned off on Disraeli. Yeah. And it's like, dude, I just crossed most of the city with you. <laughs> yeah. Like, clearly I should get a lane. Or... Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah. yeah, some cycling in the city kind of has gotten worse now that I think there's more technology and people spending more times on their more time on their phone and stuff like that. And I think there's there's a lot of great cyclists out there, but there's also a lot of bad yeah. ones too that don't follow the rules of the road and I they ruin it for people like us. It it's both the driver culture, but it's also the cyclists like cyclists need to be predictable. Yeah. We, we can't expect cars to read our minds. You need I don't know, it always drove me nuts. If a car passes me when I'm riding, I don't go back and pass them at the lights. Like, yep. that's just going to piss people off. Yeah. Whatever. We could talk all day about that one. Yeah. No, I've had people, when I'm driving, they'll be in the, the right lane, um, right tire track by the curb. And then without signaling or anything, they'll fly right across, like, in front of me while I'm driving and make a left turn. And it's just like, you know, signal to the driver so that they don't run you over. Like, <laughs> some people just don't know how to signal and if you were in a vehicle like you wouldn't do that you would use your signals so kind of frustrating um so let's let's talk a little bit about you had the opportunity to keep training and remain a carded athlete and um compete for a spot on the the 2016 rio olympics so why didn't you end up taking it, it you know it was kind of a whirlwind of changes in my life school was over um I had met the the girl of my dreams, so that uh, she'd already put up with a four-month stint in Victoria. I don't think she was going to want to keep the long-distance relationship going while I lived in Victoria for three years. Mm-hmm. I was getting older, and I seemed to have lost my my edge as far as how far I would push my body or how far I would tolerate it because I didn't have the burning desire to to go so it was kind of it was a no it was a no-brainer at that point just to shut her down time for a change i know you had talked about like uh the afterlife like previously like while you were going through it and stuff and and just like i i I don't remember exactly um our conversation on it but you had said like about working after and you you just wanted to start your life sort of thing like you you kind of had referred to to training like that as like putting your life on hold, which I guess sort of it is, you are gaining experience in other areas, but do you remember any of that? Yeah, no, like 
when when you're living in the bubble, you're literally living in the bubble. You're making just enough money to to live. Your full time pursuit is rowing. You could, at the drop of a hat, be put on a training camp somewhere for a couple weeks. But at the end of the day, you, you're you're renting an apartment. You are renting everything else. Your debt was piling up. Your life just felt like it wasn't progressing. You weren't getting further in a career. You weren't learning. You weren't pushing yourself mentally. You were just living day to day. So, yeah. Um, I don't know how to stop that phone from ringing. I could probably pick it up, but I shouldn't. <laughs> so anyways, Kevin's just hitting buttons. There we go. Voicemail. That's a good thing. Um, so, yeah, it's, I guess it's tough when you're looking at, looking at kind of what you're doing and you're putting in a lot of effort, a lot of training, a lot of, a lot of pain tolerance through the body and, um, you know, looking at everyone else, you know, running around, getting married, you know, buying houses, new car, whatever. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure it's a trade-off, but do you feel like being there and doing that has helped you with, with where you are today? And has that structure carried over and has like, has that sort of set you up for, for where you are now, you think? I would say the overall influence of rowing on my life has carried over dramatically. My time on the Olympic team perhaps has shifted my perception or, uh, the way I view things, how important they are versus uh, how trivial they really are. Um, but I don't think the overall experience was... It, it's hard to quantify because it's a slippery slope when you enter it, right? You, you don't notice how ridiculously... Uh, how ridiculous your life has gotten because it's in baby steps. Mm -hmm. And you're so focused on the one goal of rowing that you don't see how everything else has changed around you. No. And perhaps I just didn't take enough time when I quit or when I moved back to reflect on what I experienced. So that's so thinking about that, like after a race, did you do a lot of did you ever talk to yourself about like, hey, I'm very like I'm happy with myself or I'm proud of myself for for these things and then, you know, criticize your performance or whatever? Like whether it's workouts here or a competition or, you know, something along those lines, I always tell our athletes to, to look at the positives first. Like, ask yourself, like, what, what surprised you about your performance? What are you proud of? What couldn't you do last year that you were able to do this year? And then start looking at, you know, some of the negative stuff. Because a lot of times people are, are very quick to, to look at the negatives and be like, oh, I could have done this better. I could have done th that better. And I'm like, always, like, look at the positives first. And then start, you know, criticizing, hey, next time, this is what I could do to change things or, or make it a little bit better. Last time we had talked about how I continually broke down races and pieces into small chunks and renegotiated. <laughs> yeah. One of the renegotiation carrots was that if I don't quit, I won't have any regrets on this. Um, I can say that for majority of pieces, the ones that come to mind for the majority of races, the workouts... I did what I physically could, mm -hmm. and maybe I didn't spend a lot of time reflecting on how they went and more focused on where I was going next or the benefit of what took place. 
or what I had gained. So I really, yeah, it was all about just leaving it out there, not having regrets. And I think I actually accomplished that. Cool. Good to hear. So do you, do you still have a love for rowing now? And uh, like you're no longer competing at a high level. And I know it's, it's interesting. Um, people get out of sport and I've, I've had, I don't know how many people now join up here at the, at the gym and they used to belong to a team. Um, and you know, they're, they're missing that competitive environment, that team atmosphere. And then, uh, then they end up joining up here and they're like, Hey, like I kind of found it again. It, it gave me a bit of, you know, ignited that fire again. Gave me something like a new challenge and and that community aspect again. Like, how do you how do you go and train now? How do you feel when you're you know out biking or rowing or whatever? I, I've picked up hockey um, again. Again, <laughs> uh, I find that it's uh, it's great because it's so radically different than rowing. Um, there's more, I guess, placement thought or. Um, I, I don't know how to say it, like foresight and how the play's progressing that rowing doesn't take. Mm-hmm. You know, rowing, you could get by with just convincing yourself. Go hard. Everybody's <laughs> thinking the same thing as you, so do what you would to beat yourself. Yeah. Whereas hockey, people are all like, you know, they're, they're getting ready for a pass or they know how to intercept the passes. So it's not just raw athleticism there. There's uh, that sports feel. Um, as far as rowing goes, I managed to get a, buy a house right next to my old training partner that was in the city. So we, we both have our rowing shells at home and we just, uh, we row together. Um, he's a lot more consistent than I am. (laughs) I seem to have a much more relaxed attitude now on my rigid schedule. I guess I should take my own advice because I, I know I thrive under a rigid schedule and here I am doing it ad hoc. Um, but I still row, just not in any community. I, I'm i more of an introvert. I'm more of self. Uh, I like to spend time by myself. So rowing was always in my single was my favorite. Rowing against one other person was great. Um, my training partner... Yeah, my neighbor pushes me quite hard. <laughs> he's absolutely ridiculous on how active he is. Yeah, he's Curtis is insane. <laughs> minus forty out, and you see him like running to running to and from work at with a rickshaw and three kids on it. Yeah, either that or I saw him running back one day with like a table strapped to his back, <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell? Just hawking at Curtis, like, yeah. Oh, he's a character. Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> so. Um, so is it tough to like just get out and row or do you have to have structure to it? Do you have to be like, okay, I'm going to go to, um, I'm going to go to this bridge today or whatever, or do you have, you know, times in mind? I know the current changes in, uh, <laughs> in the Red River and that R- makes a difference. The rowing shells are equipped with, um, a speedometer of sorts, uh, basically an impeller that tells you how fast you're moving through the water. That was, I was kind of a stroke coach junkie where I would concentrate exactly on those numbers, on the rate, on the speed. And then uh, a squirrel did me a favor and chewed it off the bottom of my boat. (laughs) So now it's, uh, now it's purely as, as I wish. Sometimes I'll count some strokes and do like 20 hard, 10 soft, but, and just keep repeating that. Other times it's just, uh, 
it's more of a relaxation thing. Just go out for a paddle. Yeah, that's cool. I think it's nice to be able to to go and do something and not put a lot of stress or uh, just just a lot of pressure on yourself to be able to you know go out and just enjoy being out and enjoy the sport and you know have fun with it. So, do you think you'll ever compete at a masters level in the sport, or is there is there like masters competitions and stuff for rowing? Yeah, there's there's masters like there's an active community there. Um, even in the city, there's a I. I haven't been to the rowing club here for a couple of years, but there was a master's group. They train, they, they went to events down in the States, sometimes like New Orleans and stuff. It sounded like they were having a blast. Texas, I think had a lot. Um, but it's not really, yeah, I, I just don't seem to have the drive anymore. It's just now it's for fun, right? Get on a yeah. bike, go for a bike, get on a boat, go for a paddle. And is that, is that because you kind of compare yourself to where you used to be sort of thing? I think that's my aversion to comparing myself to where I used to be. Yeah. Like I, I know how good I was, or I know how good I may have been once. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and now any numbers or any quantifiable results would only serve to show me how far I've come down. <laughs> yeah, down. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, um, yeah, I noticed from, say, doing, like, Ironman events and stuff like that, having, like, a an extremely low resting heart rate, anywhere from, like, 42 to 44 beats per minute and stuff. And now it's now it's a little little higher, and just, like, the aerobic capacity is not where it used to be, and running half marathons and stuff like that, like, you know, an average pace was, like, a 7.05 or something like that. And now I'm, like, shit, I don't know if I could, like how long I could hold that for probably not probably not even two miles um but yeah it's it kind of sucks to look back at uh, you know where you were for some things and and kind of where you are now so but definitely got to try to keep it up and I guess the level that you were at it's not something that can be sustained for a very long period of time uh, the body will at some point break down so any, any words of encouragement for athletes out there chasing their dream of going to the Olympics or competing at a high level in sport? Well, everybody's got to start somewhere. Um, I think another one of my advantages was I never viewed anyone as infallible or um, I never put any of my competition on pedestals. They're all human. Um, they can all be beat. They're going through the same trials and tribulations as you. They're still growing. They're still stressed. They have self-doubt in their own minds, surely. It's just you need to convince yourself that that's you and you need to push it harder and that you are better than them. And that's that's kind of and take it and prove it. Um, so we, we talked briefly about strength training previously, and then you and I were sort of talking about that this morning as well. So you didn't do in the, in the last, uh, in part one, you had said like, you know, if you can train once train in the boat, if you can train twice, train in the boat, if you can train three times, train in the boat, if you can train four times, I think it was still training the boat. No, four times was, you can do weights. Oh, four, okay. So you weren't doing, it wasn't a ton of strength training, um, that you were doing. And it was just talking about how you were throwing out some numbers for like squats and stuff like that. Um, and they're 
my thoughts on it were like for an Olympic level athlete, I would, I would think that it would be higher, um, since rowing's about what, 70% legs. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think like the stronger those legs are, the more you're able to apply force, you know, in the catch of your stroke, um, or the, the drive there, um, you know, that's, that's going to get you more distance per stroke. And then that last, what, 30%, 15% is like core 15% upper body with the finish of the stroke. So, um, yeah, just you guys didn't do a ton of strength training, which is something that I found kind of surprising. I think rowing is a is a real neat centerpiece of anaerobic, aerobic, and um, actual strength. And you're always trying to balance the three against each other. You can never, like, you need to decide what your session is focused on, whether it's aerobic, anaerobic, or uh, building strength. Going and being able to lift... 500 pounds in a squat is only one stroke out of 200 in a race, maybe 240. Um, any movement you do, it's almost better to flatline it and be able to consistently do the exact same power for 240 strokes than it is to peak out on the first couple and then have a quick decline in power. Uh, same thing kind of goes with the anaerobic and aerobic. It's the races are typically six to seven and a half minutes. Nobody can. I've been told that people can't go anaerobic for that amount of time. No. Um, it's maybe what ninety seconds, two minutes pushing it. If you're, you know. Yeah, it's pretty much the length of time you can hold your breath. No. Uh, as far as far as I know, again, I'm not a physiologist. Um, so with that in mind you also can't go aerobic during a race because you're going to get beat when your competition is pushing harder. Mm -hmm. You're always just throttling that line of aerobic anaerobic. Like you start the race anaerobic, you go aerobic for probably 300 meters and you go anaerobic for a bit and you're, you're just crossing back and forth the whole time. Just on that knife's edge, right on the knife's edge. And you need to train that right. And aerobic capacity takes huge amounts of volumes to train. Anaerobic capacity takes, a reasonable amount of volume to chain, train. And then you have the strength there. Uh, I believe the philosophy was that strength was only being used as an injury prevention, or weights were only being used as injury prevention to create armor um, or basically reinforcement on your weak muscle groups that were under tra- underutilized in the boat. Mm-hmm. And anything used in the boat would be trained in the boat over mass amounts of volume. Like we did pieces that were 10 strokes and it was 10 strokes, everything you had. And that would be more of your explosive starts. And we did pieces that were, I think there was one that was 8,000 meters that we did, or yeah, 8,000 meters we did once a week or 16, sometimes it was two laps. So sometimes it's 1,600. 8,000 meters, 16, so eight kilometers. Well, yeah, or yeah. 16. Yeah. And like, Twice, three times a week, we'd go up to Shawnigan Lake, and it was seven and a half meters or seven and a half kilometers long lake. And we would row there, take a 30 second break, turn around, row back. And we'd do that <laughs> four times. 30 second break. No, you, you'd, yeah. you'd get a longer break after, the, on the, after you got back. Yeah. But, you know, we'd go up and down the lake three times, and that would be a session, and we'd do that twice. Yeah. Um, and at that point, you're training aerobic. Yeah. But anything that you're using is growing stronger or eroding no. if you're not using it. Yeah. I would, yeah, I would think that rowing is so repetitive that, um, 
you know, that you would want to definitely work on muscle imbalances. Um, and even you had mentioned that, uh, that one of your, one of your trainers here in Winnipeg, Daryl had, had brought up like putting muscle on was like adding armor to the body. So yeah, it's protecting your skeletal system and helping to balance things out. Um, and, uh, I don't know, I, I think it would be interesting to talk to some of the coaches and see, you know, what the, what the ideas were behind not doing as much strength training, um, especially in the off season, like my thoughts are if the, if you can get those legs a lot stronger, say you do get up to a 500 pound back squat and stuff like that. Um, and you are training, you know, varied reps and sets and stuff like that, not just for singles, but like you said, your first several strokes right out of the gate, if you are able to transfer that power, if those legs are stronger, um, it doesn't mean you're going to use all that up right at the beginning of the race. And, you know, just having a, you know, 500 pound back squat is going to be, um, useless after the first few strokes. Like I, I there's definitely going to be some carryover, but, um, yeah, it's just interesting that, uh, I, I guess part of the flip side also is your off season is when you build your anaerobic or sorry, your aerobic, my bad. Yeah. Uh, your off season, when you build your aerobic, when you're training for that amount of volume each day, you are in a fatigue state, uh, state week after week. Mm-hmm. When you're in a fatigue state, is that really when you want to be lifting heavy? Well, and yeah, that that comes to pri- uh, down to prioritizing training as well. So, like, if the goal is to build your anaerobic state, then yeah, you want to focus on that, and then maybe your next session of the day might be like something strength training wise. Um, and we were talking a little bit about like caloric deficit and stuff like that previously. So, like. If you're burning, you know, let's just say like 8,000 calories a day when you're training, um, I think as you're getting as you're getting closer to uh, competition and stuff, you're going to lay off the strength training a bit more. But uh, if you're trying to maintain, you know, your body mass, you're not trying to like go into a caloric deficit or catabolic where your body starts using muscle tissue for fuel, then I think that uh, you're going to want to try to maintain that 800 calories a day intake versus dropping down to like 600. Then you're going to start losing weight and strength and energy and all that kind of stuff. But Yeah, doing a, like the holistic calorie count on the day is one thing, but the other one would be on individual workouts and food consumptions. Like... Yeah. If you are training three sessions a day, you would need to eat a meal before each one of those. You can't eat a meal and then get in a boat right away or no. that meal is going to end up in the bottom of the boat. <laughs> yeah. So you you have an hour or so to digest. Yeah. You're on the water for two and a half hours rowing. Yeah. And yeah, you can pack a cliff bar or two, but they're 250 calories a piece. They're 500 calories over the course of two hours on the water. You're burning more than like you go sit on an erg, you're burning 1300 calories an hour on the boat. Let's say a thousand. Yeah. Um, that's 2000 calories. You just burned. You've taken in two cliff bars. That's a thousand or 500 calories. You've eaten a meal an hour before. What do you burn an hour? Just sitting around like two fifty. Like it's all, on it's all relative that when you look at it as a, as a system per day, it mathematically makes sense. But if you look at the actual ebb and flow of the workout schedule versus the calorie intake, it's a much more complex equation. Yeah. And that's, that's where, 
having a good team of like you know dietitians and coaches and all that kind of stuff and having different different eating plans and diets and stuff like that for your different phases of training is going to be extremely important. Did I mention how much we were getting paid to feed ourselves? Yeah, I know. You were, what, pancakes? <laughs> Paying <laughs> pancakes, no. <laughs> you you but, see how far $300 a month goes on a food budget. Yeah, no, and that's that's insane. Like, you know, and expecting expecting a lot out of athletes on, you know, not getting paid a whole lot of money and just... Uh, Getting getting the bare minimum to kind of survive on is is insane. Um, so we and we again, it wasn't like we were doing no weights. Yeah. The problem was that in order to see gains, don't you normally taper a fair bit and focus on a heavy lift uh, cycle, and then consolidate those gains with a medium lift, and then do a rebound, and then do another heavy lift. Well, it would depend on on competition. Like, since rowing is your primary sport, like you wanna you wanna peak and do your best in the boat. It's not gonna be, it's not like a weightlifting meet where you know you're gonna taper a couple weeks before, depending on the individual before a meet or something like that. But when it comes to like off season, I would think that you know your strength training would be high priority so that you can kind of, like you said, reinforce the skeleton and just get as strong as possible because you are going to lose some of that when you are doing more of your higher volume training for rowing and putting in all that aerobic and anaerobic work. You are definitely going to lose some strength, but you know if you have a good strength base to start off with, you know you can still go into the season and maintain some strength throughout it. Versus, but you have to remember the off season was for aerobic. Yeah. <laughs> So, like it's it's all trade offs, right? Yeah, and it depends on the person's weaknesses too. Like if you're constantly getting injured, you might yeah. need to do more strength training, and it should be a bit more specific yeah. to the and, individual. And there was remedial sessions for individuals that, yeah. like, if it was apparent that they needed to bulk up, they were put on a bigger weightlifting program. Mm -hmm. I was never on that end of the spectrum. Yeah. So, yeah. How? Yeah. Going so. Were athletes assessed individually to find out weaknesses and be like, hey, Kevin, like you need to spend more time in the weight room. So we're going to have you doing, you know, more strength training and some compound lifts and stuff like that. And then, you know, say some of the other guys, like maybe your aerobic capacity is your weakness. So you're, you know, built like a bull, but we're going to like get you doing more aerobic training. Like how did, how did that work? Or was it like, hey, here's the phase of training we're in. You guys are all on this now. When I was back in Manitoba, it was very, extremely personalized. Um, back out west, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta keep the team together somewhat, and you need to row as a boat. Um, so there was, I would say, a twenty percent variance from guy to guy on how they wanted you to do things. You, there was always personalized assessments. Everybody was highly benchmarked um, as far as their aerobic, um, lactic, and uh, anaerobic capacities went. Uh, all their strength, they would put accelerometers on the bars when we did our jump squats on our uh, jump deadlifts. And all that was uh, put on a metric. You could see whether you're improving or not. And then, again, there was focuses for people on their weak spots. Uh, there was remedial core sessions in which I kept on getting put in. Uh, yeah, there was personalized to an extent. Okay. 
Yeah, I would think that you'd want to limit your weaknesses as much as possible, whether it is in the boat or in the weight room, and um, you know, obviously make that athlete as good as possible. So um, with like stuff like drug testing and, and drug usage, is that something that came up quite a bit in rowing? We grew up together. You know me pretty well. I'm not somebody who would typically ever use drugs. Um, it's not ingrained in me. When I moved out there, I was certain that I would, uh, under no circumstances, ever take anything except, you know, food. Uh, no supplements or anything else. It's not really, I'm not very consistent with it. Three quarters of the way through, you start uh, realizing how dedicated you are. And I know it sounds counterintuitive, but like there, there's certainly, when you're in the, the bubble, when you're in the moment, and you're on the cusp of being cut, I could definitely understand why somebody would make the choice of between getting cut and starting to take an, uh, a banned substance. Uh, as far as our system was, it was clean um, from what I saw. We were given from our dietitians and um, trainers all kinds of supplements, but none of which would have been banned. They even uh, had us take courses on the WADA website hmm. in regards to how to read uh, prescriptions and uh, medications and determine whether or not they were banned and what type. Um, like it was pretty clean. Uh, not a lot of exposure to that side. Yeah. So did you get, I know you got like drug tested here. I know one of our, one of our weightlifting coaches here, Joe, he, uh, he does a lot of the drug testing on athletes here in Manitoba and sometimes gets flown out places to do drug testing, like surprise drug testing on, on Canadian athletes. So, uh, which is, which is pretty cool that, you know, they're pretty, uh, they're on that sort of thing, trying to keep, as many different sports clean as possible. Is that how, how often would you get tested out there? Out there, I wasn't, uh, whenever I was in Manitoba, I seemed to be the like number one athlete for them to call on. Yeah. Um, out there, there was uh, two others ahead of me that seemed to be the choice. Um, I would be tested, I would say 60% in competitions. Yeah. I had one where the day before the race, they, they started doing the benchmark testing, so they'd take a blood sample and start creating a benchmark for you and then see deviations as far as testosterone and, and all that fun stuff. And I remember they, they used a German doctor, and he, uh, you get to bring your own doctor, right? So Canada gave me a doctor to come be my advocate. Mm -hmm. And uh, this German doctor went and looked for a vein, and they only get three tries. And after the third try, you just automatically pass. So they're only allowed to poke you three times. <laughs> but on the third time, this guy, he starts doing like a sewing needle. Like he doesn't fully pull the needle out of my skin and he just keeps digging around with it. Oh, okay. Oh my God, my arm was numb the next day. Yeah. Like, oh, that does damage. Yeah. Anyways, that was my drug testing story. Uh, as far as getting <laughs> tested, yeah, it seemed like every major competition, I'd get back to the dock and there'd be some guy, some foreign fellow who uh, wanted to watch me urinate into a bottle. And that's like, you know, explain 
explain to people what that looked like or well, <laughs> not, not what it looked like. But like, you know, so what, what, what happens when you get drug tested? Well, they come to the dock and they give you a piece of paper and they tell you that you've been selected for a random drug test and everybody, yeah, <laughs> random, I, uh, um, so they fought, they hand you a bottle of water, uh, yeah. and they highly recommend you don't drink anything except their sealed bottles of water between the time they see you and the time they pee in a bottle. Yeah. On the back of the sheet, it says you, you have to give them your next sample or next passing of urine and explicitly not to pee in the shower. Uh, I thought that was funny. So this guy follows you around until you uh, drop trow and lift up your shirt and pee in a bottle for him. And, uh, you know, they can't really force you to pee. So if they knock on your door at 9.30 at night and you had just peed, you can force them to hang out and walk. hang out for an hour and a half. There was <laughs> stories on the team where one guy <laughs> pinched it for three and a half hours and eventually peed his couch because he just wanted to screw with them. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> come sit down and watch this movie with me. <laughs> rowers are, are very stubborn. Yeah. Like, I guess at that level, everybody's got a character flaw. And this guy, he was going to win. He was going to show them. <laughs> awesome. Urinating on his own couch. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, so they follow you around. And I, I remember at, they used to just make you drop trowel yeah. to around your ankles. But then the, one day, I think it was might have been Joe. Does he drive a minivan? He drives a minivan. No. no. Does no. he sell the shoes? Uh, anyways. Um, he got the shoes in his basement. Okay, yeah. Lifting I, shoes, yeah. So I don't, I'm, I think it was him, but so they, we, he follows me into my washroom and uh, I start, uh, I pull out the bottle and he's like, no, you got to take off your shirt. I'm like, what? You never made me take off my shirt before. You just made me pull it up a little bit. He's like, no, it's got to come off. I'm like, okay. So then there I am, you know, standing there, guys watching me and I'm like, what's with the change in policy? And apparently they caught one athlete with a prosthetic uh, penis and he had a little awesome. pump on the side, eh? Like just on his shirt line. Wow. And all I could think of from that moment on is how that conversation went. Like, <laughs> excuse me, sir, that is not your penis. It's a, yes, it is. And tip. like, did the tester go out and grab the thing and try to pull it off? And the guy's like, no, don't grab my... And was the skin colored match? Like, that, that's really where my head's at. Like, it's a he's a tan different fella. color. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's like you've got a really good tan, but it's like bright white. And like, if you're gonna wear a prosthetic penis over top of your penis, yeah. And if you're like, once they knock on the door, that's you can't leave their sight. So that's dedication. Do you just always wear the prosthetic penis? <laughs> yeah. And then if you're gonna have a prosthetic penis made, yeah. do you make it extra big? Like, yeah. Just to be like, yep, oh, that's me. I guess it, he wouldn't want it too small. It'd be like putting on a. If you're a size 10 and a half in shoes, you're wearing a size nine or whatever, like that wouldn't be too comfortable, would it? I think it might be more comfortable because like, I don't know, I, I just can't. S- anyways. <laughs> okay. Anyways. We're digressing. Yeah. Okay. So interesting. Um, so coaching styles, you had a bunch of different coaches, um, whether you were in Winnipeg or out in Victoria and, um, you know, what's, what did you see for different coaching styles? What, what worked for you and, you know, uh, give us a rundown on that. In Winnipeg, um, I guess the first coach here, he had other priorities. So I was more of coaching myself and tagging along with workouts. I found that worked for my giver all, but not worked for my technique. Mm-hmm. Um, when I moved out west, we uh, I got to experience um, uh, one of the historical uh, or one of the more prominent coaches that we've had. And he had a, 
he had a great philosophy. It was um, aerobic capacity is done when you no longer have enough power to generate anaerobic capacity. So every workout, every piece was 100%. And by, Saturday, by Friday or Saturday, you just had nothing left to give, so you were aerobic the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I found, like, perhaps I wasn't the fittest under him, but the self-doubt under him fully eroded. Like, I remember doing a race against just the local teams and... Uh, we left the gate and I looked around and I'm like, wow, everybody's like neck and neck here. And, you know, it was me and another guy from the national team and like two guys from the local club, a couple guys from uh, Seattle. And nobody fell off for the first 250, 500 meters. And then uh, it occurred to me that that was my pace and this was their sprint. So like it just was a different philosophy that your head kind of took on that you went all out all the time, start to end, and that was that. Whereas before I trained under this fellow, you had a dedicated race plan and you knew your limits and you know you, you phased out a little bit to try to conserve energy. Um, this guy just gave you so much mental strength that you could do it with no plan. You just put your head down. Under him, I don't think we were capitalizing on the on our physiques like. Uh, I don't think we were in the best shape we could have been. No. Um, on the flip side, we had another coach come in later who only concentrated on the on the physical side. And you could see, even though I remembered what it was like to train under the first coach, yeah. that strength, like that uh, mental ability to not, to just go and go and go until you break, eroded over time because all you, you were coached, you were trained mm-hmm. to hit a very specific number um, one of his favorite workouts was, uh, three by 20, three by six K on the erg, on the rowing machine. Mm. And after every piece, you got one minute off and that was to test your blood for your lactic acid level. Okay. And if you were above, I think it was 2.3, no, it would have been four millimoles, four millimoles. Yeah. If you were over four millimoles, you had to go lighter. Yeah. If you were under three, you had to go harder and you were always expected to be right on that line. Right over four is when you start accumulating yeah. lactic acid in the blood. And then yeah. under that, you just want to find you, a spot you to You clear it under it. two, right? Yeah. Um, so it was all about that. So you were highly coached not to grind it down and not to push the numbers. You were coached like the actual um, wattage. You weren't grinding that. You were more rowing for a prescribed level of exertion. Yeah. And that level of exertion was not full exertion. So when you raced, you you almost had to like keep reminding yourself that this is a race. Like, right. yeah. go, come on. Like, this is no time to play the the millimole game. Like, come on. Yeah. But well, under that's... him, you also found your numbers on the rowing machine yeah. would go down. Like, you would be able to pull. You'd be able to go faster on the rowing machine. But in a race scenario, it didn't seem like you had the same mental drive mental confidence let's call it confidence yeah that's for like more testing and prescription though so if they can find out what wattage you're able to hang out at in stages below that four millimoles then if you're training you know doing pieces at that then you'll get benefit from it rather than i guess if you know you're, you're doing testing or whatever and someone keeps rowing at where they're getting like two 2.5 millimoles they're not training at their 
peak capacity and, and finding out where that is. Yeah, I, I don't think there was very many people who would who would have been on the lower side. Like, I think most people no. had to be um, directed to lighten up. Yeah. I think in order to make it onto that team, I think you had to have an inherent amount of drive and competitiveness. And yeah. keep in mind, there's 12 of us rowing. We can all see each other's numbers. Yeah. Like, nobody wants to be the guy that's numbers are the yeah. are out of the pack. Everybody wants to drive that number. Everyone wants to be in the group. Nobody wants to be thought of as the weak link. And that number was definitely a good indicator on weak links. Cool. And so what's, what worked the best for you as an athlete? <laughs> Daryl. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like the trainer here was just, he puts so much time and effort and science behind the way he would train me. Um, I guess he was lucky to have the facility that he had at that time. He, yeah, it was uh, amazing what uh, he was able to walk that line between the mental side um, of goading me to go harder versus yelling at me to let off and to do the prescribed work. Um, he did a great job of it. I think um, the two out west that I mentioned were quite far on the spectrum in their uh, respective schools of mental versus physical. Okay. Yeah. It's great when you have someone that you can work with that, that knows, you know, who you are and sort of what you need as an athlete to be able to progress rather than just, um, you know, giving you one thing like the physical or the mental. I think when you were talking about the mental, like that's, that's huge. And that's something that maybe a lot of people don't focus on and they just focus on the physical things. Um, but whether it is, I don't know if you used like positive self-talk and stuff like that, uh, to, uh, to kind of reinforce what you're doing. But, um, I remember repeating over my head over and over that I'm not allowed to make decisions on a down note. Yeah. And you know, when you're like 50, when you're 750 meters into a 2,000 meter piece, yeah, that's a down note. Yeah, so I wasn't allowed to make a decision there. Yeah, so that was what I kept repeating mentally in my head all the time was, yeah, well, I can't really decide to quit. Yeah, don't go shopping hungry. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly that, right? Like, all right. So, um, what are three things you would recommend for an athlete uh, to to kind of keep doing to reach their maximum potential in their given sport? No excuses. One. No, no excuses. excuses. No excuses? <laughs> All three of them, no excuses. Yeah, there's just make it a priority, right? Like, this is what you're setting out to do. Mm -hmm. There's no excuse not to do it. Yeah. Um, if you don't hit your goal, don't dwell on the excuse. Don't beat yourself up. But stick to your program, stick to your routine, and no excuses on... Like, just accept it. Yeah. Right? Cool. All right. Anything else you want to add to, uh, for any of the viewers, listeners? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this is, uh, this has been entertaining. Cool. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for coming down and, uh, hitting part two. Uh, hopefully everyone enjoyed it and, um, yeah, it was awesome having you here and, asking you some of these questions, some of the stuff I didn't know answers to, and uh, some of it I did, but, uh, you know, it was really awesome that you took the time to come down and, uh, and chat with us about it.
Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And, um, yeah, hopefully we've got some more awesome podcasts coming out. If you have any people that you want to uh, to hear on the podcast uh, here at Stark, maybe send me an email, info at Stark, S-T-A-R-K-E, strength.com, and I'll see if I could get them on the show. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening, and take care. <laughs>